This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, Garrett Graff on Dragonfire and the stories we still tell about 9-11. When a terror group gets a nuclear device into the largest city in the United States, that is, to use a technical intelligence term, called a bad thing. We will probably never experience the unity that we saw after the attack after 9-11 again. I fully believe that there is going to be a Republican congressional candidate next year who runs on the platform of having participated in the January 6th insurrection. Garrett Graff, welcome to Chatter. It is a pleasure to talk to you, Shane Harris. You know, we, we have spent many, many, many hours in many rooms together over the years, but the pandemic has kept us apart. And I feel like this might, this might be the closest we've actually gotten to, like, spending, like, real time together during the pandemic. We've been friends since the Cheneys were in the Republican Party. <laughs> I don't even remember that. <laughs> to give people, like, a real sense of the time there. Yeah, it has been a long time, but uh, pandemic's been treating you well-ish. Um, okay. I, I would not say that it has. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I may have been setting you up for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to see you. Um, so we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. You have a new novella out, if we can call it that. We'll decide what we're going to call it when we get when we get to that. Um, but I think a lot of people will know your work. Pro- I'm guessing probably from two big projects. One being your um, just terrific oral history of 9-11. And I suspect a lot of people will also recognize you from having seen you on CNN a lot during uh, the Mueller investigation as kind of, I feel like you kind of became the de facto Mueller whisperer uh, among a lot of people. Uh, Well, sorry, among among a lot of commentators, not many people who really understood Bob Mueller. And I kind of want to start with that because I feel like your entry into writing about Mueller kind of opens up, and that's around the time that I think you and I met, and you can remind me exactly what year this was, but you were doing a long profile in Washingtonian Magazine, if I have this right of him, that ended up being in two parts. And I feel like this kind of for you becomes your entry point into what you call near history, the term that I think I I saw you use recently. Um, Talk about why you decided to start writing about Bob Mueller and how that came about. Yeah. So I wrote about Bob Mueller for the first time in the spring of 2008, um, basically by chance. Um, uh, I was working at Washingtonian Magazine at the time, which you may have been also. I forget exactly when you joined us. Um, I think I came over a lot later because you were working on your book based off of Mueller. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, keep going. um, And, you know, when you're writing and my job at the time was writing big political profiles of people in Washington. Um, and it was, this was the spring of 2008. And you know, the challenge is when you're are going to invest, you know, three, four, five months in writing about someone, you want to make sure that it's going to be relevant for a while. And, um, this was, uh, you know, the midst of the, the presidential campaign. It was uh, it was early enough in the spring of 2008. I remember this that we didn't even know whether it was going to be Hillary or Obama as the Democratic nominee. And so 
Uh, we knew the Bush term was ending, and I was looking for someone who was going to still be relevant in Washington come January, uh, regardless of who the president ended up being. And uh, as you know, Shane, and as all of us have learned too thoroughly in the years since, the FBI director is supposed to serve a fixed 10-year term. And so I decided to write about Bob Mueller because he was one of the only figures that we knew was going to carry over from Bush to whomever the next president was going to be, whether it was Hillary, whether it was Obama, whether it was McCain. And so I um, started writing about Mueller and I happened to catch him. He's sort of famously uninterested in being written about or being profiled. Um, but I happened to catch him at a moment where he was feeling semi-confident about the direction of the bureau. Um, he had been director at that point for, you know, seven ish years, six, seven years. Um, and, um, was sort of willing to be profiled, um, was really willing to be, uh, uh, followed around and hounded by a reporter. And so I ended up, uh, writing about him, as you said, in a two-part profile for the magazine. And then that grew, um, eventually into the book that I published in the spring of, um, I think it was 2011. It would have been the spring of 2011. Uh, the Threat Matrix, which was a history of the FBI's counterterrorism program and the work that Mueller and the Bureau had done in the years after 9-11. Um, and that was, as you said, sort of my entry into writing about federal law enforcement, writing about uh, uh, the post 9-11 environment um, and, and writing about Mueller, where, which I have uh, inadvertently spent, um, you know, almost all of the 12 or 13 years since uh, continuing to write about. Why do you think that he said yes to you? I mean, he he could do an interview with anybody, but he agrees to let like the I think you were probably like 28 at the time. You know, young journalists follow him around and say, I want to do the inside profile of Bob Mueller. How did you pitch him and why did he say yes? Yeah. So I think that there were two things going for me. One was he he was he was, as I said, feeling settled. Um, and so he was feeling more confident. I mean, we sort of forget, I think, how uh, traumatic and challenging those five years after 9-11 were for Mueller and his tenure at the FBI, the future of the FBI, you know, the nation's counterterrorism landscape, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, but by 2008, sort of things felt a little bit calmer. Things felt, um, you know, that he had his leadership in, in place. He had a vision going. Um, he had some sense of sort of how um, his uh, directorship, uh, what trajectory his directorship was on. And then I think the other thing, and this is, you know, this is one of the big divides between the work that you do and the work that I do, um, is I don't really write about anything day to day. Um, and so the advantage that I have in those situations with someone like Mueller is I can come in and uh, 
you know, spend four or five months with his leadership team, with him. Um, and everyone, when they're talking to me, knows that nothing they say is going to appear in the Washington Post the next day or the next week. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, yep. you know, this is the, the advantage in some ways that authors and historians have that um, daily journalists don't, which is when you're writing a big magazine story or when you're writing a book, um, people have some sense uh, that their decisions, that their quotes, that their answers are going to be presented uh, in a richer context um, down the road and less focused on, um, you know, just the literal, you know, environment that they may be facing at that exact moment. Um, and, and that, by the way, is where I, I came to know um, John Carlin, who was his deputy chief of staff at the time, Lisa Monaco, who was his chief of staff at the time, Lisa, of course, now um, the the deputy attorney general, John Carlin, um, her uh, principal deputy, um, and you know the, the the people who were sort of around Mueller at that time have gone on to very distinguished and senior careers in in government in the years since. It's kind of a marker of I mean, I'm sure plenty of people who worked in Washington feel this, right? Where the people who you knew when they were, you know, staffers kind of toiling in the trenches are now in these tremendous positions of power and authority. And it's I've always found that as a journalist, it was when when that started happening was when I looked around and thought, like, God, I'm getting older. Yes. Well, and, and you know, that, that's true of you, too, Shane. Like you, you were, um, you know, you were barely off your Hollywood years when I was uh, first getting to know you. And yeah. You know, that was, uh, uh, you know, you were sort of, you have similarly sort of risen through the ranks to the Washington Post in the years since. It's been an interesting ride. We'll, we'll talk about our, our time working together maybe too in a little bit. Um, but it's interesting, you, 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 you seize on something there about Mueller that's a really important insight into him, which is that, and you and I have talked about this over the years of the idea of there being you know, the career establishment of Washington that is the one that in many ways defines so much of the power and the way this town works. <clears throat> but, you know, your background, I mean, you grew up in Vermont. You worked for the Howard Dean campaign. You come from a background of of politics and, and politicians. And talk, talk a little bit about that and, and sort of how that kind of was in a way an introduction to Washington for you probably as well. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things that was interesting for me in my career was my first exposure to Washington journalism was I, I interned for ABC News in right. 2000 um, uh, in the political unit, which, um, you know, this was this was one million eons ago in Washington geologic time. But the note, um, which Mark Halperin was mm -hmm. newly authoring at the time, this, this idea of sort of a morning crib sheet for politics, um, was, uh, you know, the most interesting, biggest thing in Washington. Um, and then, uh, the, the year after that, um, end up at, uh, the Atlantic in DC, um, with, uh, um, which was housed with the hotline. 
um, which, you know, I know you spent a, a lot of time in that same Watergate mm-hmm. building um, mm-hmm. in, in the National Journal group. Um, but, you know, like... So hotline's another storied institution. A, yeah. Another I mean, storied institution. That, the note like, in the hotline were progenitors of, you know, <laughs> the blogosphere. It, yeah, it, and, the, you know, like, let's remember the hotline began to exist. And, and, you know, when you and I were still sort of starting out in Washington was still, like, heavily distributed by fax yes. every day at noon. That's right. That's um, right. And so, you know, my first... Uh, after college, I ended up back in Vermont here in Burlington, where I live now, actually, again, and was deputy national press secretary on Howard Dean's presidential campaign, as you mentioned. Um, and, you know, we were right at the cutting edge of blogging and online fundraising. You know, this was an era before Facebook and YouTube uh, existed. Um and it's hard to remember just how different media and politics was even that recently. Um, but, you know, we did not have Blackberries on the campaign. Like, um, hmm. people did have Blackberries, but Burlington, Vermont did not have Blackberry coverage. Wow. Um, and so, uh, you know, we had... Uh, um, it, you know, it was always this joke with the traveling press corps um, on the Dean campaign that they loved coming back here when the governor had a couple of days off the, the campaign trail because their Blackberries ceased working the moment that they landed. <laughs> and they were able to sort of go about, you know, living their daily lives without worrying about email for a couple of days. And you wrote a book. I think your first book was the first campaign, right? Which was largely about Dean's campaign as a digital campaign or kind of what we would come to think of as this new way of campaigning? Yeah. And and looking a little bit more broadly, and I've I've actually been thinking a lot about this just even in the last couple of weeks with uh, um, the infrastructure bill um, and and even the Virginia elections in some way. Um, So the first campaign was my first book. It came out in the spring of 2007. And it was... um, Uh, It was the idea that the 2008 presidential campaign was going to be the first campaign of the 21st century, sort of the first Mm. campaign totally remade by technology and globalization and looking at how um, even in that moment, our political process was not catching up with the level of tectonic change that globalization and technology was driving on issues like the economy, climate change, um, healthcare, education. Um, and, uh, you know, I, one of the things I've been thinking about, you know, the book is sort of long forgotten and terribly out of date. Um, but the, the sort of fundamental thesis, I, I think, unfortunately, is still right. Like, I still feel like we have a political system that has not caught up with the world that we actually now face today. Not caught up with it in terms of which aspects do you think are the most kind of point to the most profound or troubling gaps? Um, so I think it is uh, uh, just like policy wise and answer wise. Um, and, and I mean that in in both sort of small ways and big ways that we have not seen a political system that has responded to the level of economic dislocation 
that we are experiencing as globalization sweeps across our economy, as Mm. technological change sweeps across our economy. Um, And then also, you know, thinking about uh, the order of magnitude of the answers that we are trying to offer. Um, You know, these investments that we are making right now um, to try to fight climate change, to address climate change, to remediate climate change, um, you know, it all would have been a lot easier if we'd started this process, you know, 12 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I would argue we're probably still in order of magnitude short of uh, the scale of solutions that we actually need to be uh, answering. You've been back in Vermont now for what four four years? Did you move back four years? Believe ago? it or not, six. Six. Jeez. This, yeah. Okay. So six years. Um, I mean, and you and you were in Washington for a long time, editing magazines, writing, reporting. How much does being back in Vermont now make you feel like we're all here, kind of in a bubble, or does that does that get overplayed? I mean, do you feel having kind of lived and worked worked in both places? Do people here? understand the enormity and the gravity of the challenge that you're describing here and how far behind arguably we are on solving some of these big problems? So I'm going to answer it a little bit of it a different way, um, which is I think the thing that, you know, having just talked about, you know, climate change and healthcare and all of that, um, I think the place where the Washington bubble feels the most out of step with Uh, with reality to me right now um, is actually the threat to democracy Um, that I I feel like the media environment that the Democrats uh, writ large um, are not reacting to the rise and open arms to authoritarianism uh, and, and sort of the basic threat to our democracy that the modern Republican Party faces um, in anywhere near the level of uh, that they need to be. That, um, you know, we still see sort of too much of the media caught in, you know, uh, there are really wonderful people on both sides. There are critics on both sides when, you know, I think we, I think it is increasingly clear from this year that there is uh, one party that is not fundamentally committed anymore to the future of the American experiment. You know, it's something I've been thinking about lately too, because we just published this huge project on the January 6th attacks right. at the Post where this, you know, the before, during, and after pieces. And you know, one of the, I think, motivating forces in just doing that project was when our editors realized that the Congress was not going to do an investigation, you know, analogous to the 9-11 commission, you know, which which I think you did. And there were bipartisan calls to do something like that. But to your point, the political environment, even though that was an attack genuinely on democracy itself, right, that was an attempt to halt the certification of an election and arguably overturn the results of it, the environment doesn't allow for that kind of investigation to occur. I mean, had it, we probably would not have done a 40,000-word report on the events. But I think it just – it underscores the degree to which the system 
you know, isn't functioning the way that we would have expected it to, certainly not the way we expected it to 20 years ago. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I don't think, um, you know, this is, uh, I, you know, for, for reasons that you and I sort of both understand from our professional background, like I do think that there are a lot of worthwhile parallels to the 9-11 response and, you know, this is roughly equivalent to the idea of the, you know, Bush administration refusing to participate in the 9-11 investigations and, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, one half of our government uh, you know, effectively trying to deny that anything was wrong with the 9-11 attacks at all. Um, and, you know, you can sort of think about how different Washington would be had, you know, basically the Republican Party opted out of uh, the reforms and investigations in the wake of 9-11. And it makes me think, too, about not that there there was a bipartisan investigation of Russian interference in the election in 2016. The Senate Intel Committee did, I think, by you know any measure, I mean, a really tremendous report and very in-depth. Um, you can't necessarily say this anything about the House. Uh, and you certainly can't say this, that the Trump administration had a willingness to investigate uh, <laughs> the attack on our democracy in, in 2016. Um, and that would have been analogous perhaps too to George W. Bush saying, you know, let's not worry about investigating al-Qaeda or figuring out what happened on 9-11. Your, your kind of piece of, you know, the story, a big part of your piece of the story and contributing to it around the Russian interference in the election is, you know, tracking Bob Mueller and his investigation, explaining to people, you know, who he is, how he operates. There's so many questions I could ask you, but one is I wonder if you had the feeling, as I will confess, I did, <laughs> so I was watching the Mueller investigation, that the American public is putting way too much hope in this one man to sort of solve the problem, to answer the question of what happened, to dispense justice, to resolve everything, and, figure, and feeling like this thing is heading maybe not for a letdown on the facts. There may be a very revealing investigation that comes out of what Bob Mueller's doing. No surprise, he's a very thorough investigator. But there was this sense that I think that people had, and largely on the left, yes, that Bob Mueller is going to, quote, save us. Did you think about that and think that people were sort of heading for disappointment during that period? Um, I, I think that there are uh, two different ways that I would answer that question. One is, um, I think we all underestimated, um, myself included, uh, Mueller, or, or sorry, we overestimated um, the level of aggression Mueller would bring to the investigation Um based on some of his early moves. Um, when you look at that first set of uh, charges that he brought against George Papadopoulos, um, against Paul Manafort, um, when you look at those early indictments against the GRU, um, it, it seemed like this was a case that was going to be both wide ranging and highly aggressive. Um, 
And I don't think that that bore out all the way through. Um, and I think that that's related to sort of the second answer that I would give, which is um, I overestimated uh, or misestimated uh, the reaction that Mueller's report would galvanize the rest of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I still think, you know, if you go back and you look at what Mueller reported, if you look at the level of information he had, um, it, it's as damning as any criminal indictment we have ever seen of any political figure in American politics. Yep. Um, and you know congress basically shrugged um the effort to push it forward effectively collapsed um and then in a way that you know seems relatively clear in hindsight but really surprised i think people in the moment was the the extent to which bill barr as attorney general turned out to be a bad faith actor in the closing, you know, hours really of the Mueller investigation and and sort of deflated the report before anyone had a chance to, uh, to read it for themselves. Um, and, And I think if Mueller's report had been released publicly before Barr said anything, um, it would have felt very different to us um, as a country and as a political system. You you spend so much of your time stepping back from the moment and 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 thinking about broader scopes of things. Was this? I mean, it almost felt probably for you. I would imagine like commenting on the Mueller report and having to track it and having to go on TV and explain him and be there to respond. Probably felt kind of like being a daily journalist again. Oh, very much so, and that that was you know part of what made those Trump era uh, news cycles so incredible were, you know, you really felt hour by hour that you were living through history and that, um, you know, big things were in motion and that, you know, whatever crazy thing you started the day reporting on, um, you know, was likely to be overtaken by something even crazier and more outlandish uh, later on, uh, you know, before your story could appear or before you could even appear on TV. Did it, did it make you miss being back in the realm of when you were blogging and you were doing more of the of the grind? Or did you think, no, nah, I, I made the right choice by trying to largely anyway step back from that? No, I, I've been very happy to have ended up where I am. You, you know, you, you and I have talked a lot about this over the years. I, I never intended to go into magazine journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just literally never got a job on the newspaper side, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, was uh, exactly one hundred percent unsuccessful in every newspaper internship and job I ever applied for. You did edit a newspaper once, though. College newspaper, yes, but never, um, <laughs> a never a, um, a Daily City paper, um, and. 
you know, that was always my dream originally. You know, my father uh, spent his career with the Associated Press. I grew up right. in uh, daily journalism, um, wire service journalism, and was uh, always expecting that that was what I, where I was going to go. And, you know, just my career worked out differently. And yeah, and it's you know, and we have talked about this a lot over the years. And mine, very similarly. I mean, I I wrote for daily websites in the early part of my career, but always places that were attached to a magazine, and often a print magazine. I mean, very early in my career, government executive magazine. Before that, movie line, alluding to the Hollywood years, National Journal, where I was writing before I came over to work with you at Washingtonian. And you know, I wonder. To to me, it's like that. That always suited me, and I suspect it probably did to some degree you as well, because it allows you to write about current events, but with enough distance that you're not overtaken by them. And it to me, it sort of it scratched the itch of wanting to think more broadly and more expansively, and ultimately tell stories, and not to be just sort of beholden to the daily events, but to just you know not necessarily to always write a book about it, but to be able to kind of take a deep breath and step back and and put perspective on it. And so when you talk about when you became editor of Washingtonian, because that was the point at which then I left National Journal, I came over and worked with you for about three years, when you had the opportunity to say, okay, now you're going to edit something, but it's going to be a monthly magazine. And yes, with a daily website that, you know, that has a lot of interesting news and, and useful information for people. But the flagship of it is this, you know, appointment with the reader once a month uh, that you're going to be thinking about six months in advance, probably on a given issue. So what was your kind of what was the allure of doing that? And 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 were you, did you have any trepidations about taking that job? Yeah. Uh, so I think that what we have seen in the last, you know, 20 ish years is the bifurcation of American journalism into uh systematic coverage and episodic coverage hmm. um and that sort of the the two ways to do journalism really well are to do the incredibly small updates sort of minute by minute you know hour by hour um at a very high uh frequency at a very micro level um, and, you know, I think you look at, uh, you know, a Politico does this enormously well. Um, Axios Punchbowl uh, new this year, you know, has succeeded basically by tracking things, you know, in, in some cases in Washington, you know, minute by minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you look at organizations that have succeeded and it's places that do things incredibly thoroughly uh at a systematic level um you know if you read a new yorker profile a new york times magazine profile um uh uh you know you never have to read another piece on that subject Um, (laughs) and that that for me is the type of journalism that i've always uh been excited and, and eager to do Um, And it's what I do in my Wired stories now. You know, I'll I'll write a piece, uh, you know, I wrote a big piece about uh, the Trump administration in Huawei um, that was trying to make sense of, you know, two or three years of stories that had played out on, you know, page A7 and A12 of the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. um, 
on a daily basis, but, you know, pulling them all together so that people could view them all in the context of what was really unfolding. Um, if you had sort of lost the thread of these daily stories. Um, and, and I think that that's a, a really, really important end um, at the other end of the spectrum of journalism is helping people to understand the big forces that are underway in the world at a given time. And you've always had, I think, a good instinct for what's going to be a story that's going to be the big sweep, beginning, middle, and end, great story, but that's also going to speak to some larger truth, right, and explain something. And the one I think about when you and I worked together was you had the idea to write kind of an epic narrative about what will strike some people as a somewhat unglamorous topic, which was the Air Force's uh, decades-long attempt to field a new fleet of aerial refueling planes, which are kind of you know indispensable when it comes to being able to project military power around the world. Um, but this was a story that you tracked on, I tracked on, and realized that it was this story of utter dysfunction and corruption in Washington and what was all broken about the way that we spend money and the procurement system and that it spoke to this kind of larger truth about what had gone wrong in so many ways about the military and budgeting and, and bureaucracy. Um, that story still I hear from people in the Pentagon who give that story to people and say, just read this. If you want another history of it, just read this. And I think that that gets to your point about sometimes the ambition in magazine writing and it's kind of the highest one and it's great when you can hit it is to say, write the story that, you know, more or less says this is basically all you really ever need to read about X, right? And you have to kind of know, though, I think ahead of time, whether that is even going to be a target that you have a chance of hitting. And this was one where, you know, obviously it did. And, and you know, Shane, you published that story that is still, uh, you know, as you know, one of my favorite stories that you've ever written. And you published that you know, 10 years ago, probably mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Pentagon has spent tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars more on that project since. Um, and, you know, we still don't have a new, uh, <laughs> we, we still don't have a new fleet of tankers mm -hmm. uh, underway yet. Um, and I think if I remember correctly of the math from your story, sometime right about now the last person born in the world who will go on to fly someday the current aging broken fleet of u.s aerial refueling tankers will be born right that um right. sort of we're we're right around in the time frame now in 2021 2022 when uh, 20 years from now, someone will have grown up to be the last pilot of one of these uh, broken refueling tankers. I mean, it's a perverse cause for celebration. Yeah. <laughs> There's a new pilot born today. Um, so let's talk about your your latest work. So much of the, st of the writing that you've done over the years has been informed by both the 9-11 attacks, but also the transformational effect that that has had on government on society on you know many aspects of it, but particularly with you know with a lot of focus on you know the people who responded to those events and what it was like to live in the moment of it and particularly in the in the days and weeks afterwards so your new work 
and I guess we can call it a novella, but we'll talk about like what what you like to call it. It's called Dragonfire. Um, this is based on a real event about which very little is known. So start by telling us about the real event uh, at the heart of the story that you wrote. Yeah. Um, so this is actually an event that I first came across in the FBI book that we started talking about, Threat Matrix, you know, a, a decade ago. Um, I don't know, Shane, you have probably heard of this incident. Um, uh, I don't know if it rung a bell when you, you started reading this. It vaguely did. But then there was another weird incident like four years later that was similar that's, that kind of spun people up. But it wasn't this precise. But I kind of was like, oh, yeah, right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah. So this was um, in the fall of 2001. This is mm -hmm. a, a real incident a, a, again, um, where there was a Afghan source who reported to U.S. intelligence that Al Qaeda had successfully smuggled a nuclear weapon, what's known as a IND, improvised nuclear device, into New York City, um, and um the you you know that that is um it to use a technical intelligence term chain uh called a bad thing when <laughs> someone gets a when a terror group gets a nuclear device into the largest city in the united states yeah, i think bad thing was in your glossary in the yeah. book and so you know the u.s government spun up to try to investigate this and and, and run it down and it, uh, it's one of the only known times that the U.S. has ever activated this secret unit at the Department of Energy known as NEST, the Nuclear Emergency Search Team, or that, that was what NEST was called then. Mm -hmm. but, um, and they deployed this you know, highly trained set of elite nuclear scientists to New York to try to run down whether there was a nuclear device hidden in New York City somewhere. And uh, they didn't tell the New York City government at the time. They didn't tell Rudy Giuliani, who was the mayor. And it only came out uh, later that uh, this you know, threat, this alert, had happened at all in the fall of 2001. Um, and... That effectively is sort of all we've known about this for a long time, um, and uh, I, um, I, it, it is an incident that has always stuck with me um, because in talking to U.S. government officials about that incident that fall, um, it was a turning point along with a couple of other sort of WMD threats that fall that really helped galvanize the Bush administration's push against Iraq. And, and what I mean by that is the Dragonfire incident, along with a couple of other threats, um, uh, there was another one um, where uh, there was a threat, the, the, a belief that a nuclear device had uh was being smuggled across the United States on a train. Um, I think it was between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh um, it, that the government tried to run down uh, unsuccessfully. Um, and it, it made them realize uh, 
effectively that there wasn't going to be a good answer for what happened when a WMD already existed inside the United States. That once a uh, once a nuclear weapon exists in the hands of a terror group, uh, it is almost untraceable. It is almost unfindable. And so they, uh, that in theory, according to sort of officials at the time, was a big part of deciding to go to war with Iraq was, was this idea that we couldn't risk the possibility of WMDs falling into the hands of terrorists because once they existed in the hands of terrorists, there was almost nothing that you could do to stop them. And so um, that th this Dragonfire incident has always been something that has interested me for that reason. Um, and I, I went back a couple of years ago to try to begin to report it out and got really strange answers from people as I tried to talk to them about it. Um, and it made me think that there was something more that happened in that incident than we have publicly understood. Um, and I wasn't able to get to the bottom of it. Um, and uh, so I uh, wrote this uh, novella of sorts, um, as you were saying, sort of speculative nonfiction, uh, imagining how the incident might have gone down uh, using the information that we actually know happened in real life. Um, so this is, this is uh, you know, the type of literary license that you don't normally get to have as a journalist. Um, but I tried to base it in and ground it in all real facts about that environment, the people who are involved, what they were thinking about, um, how Nest operates and, and, and things like that. Um, and then sort of imagine, you know, how the U.S. government responded to a, um, uh, you know, the threat of a nuclear device living in or existing in the U.S. city. And I have to say, you know, reading it, I mean, you know, with that understanding as you go, because you explained this all in the introduction to say, look, I mean, everything I'm going to tell you in terms of the procedures that would probably government officials would follow, the organizations that would respond that's all based in fact, right? I mean, like you know, there is a there is Nest, right? There, there, the National Security Council would be involved in the following things. The CIA would play a role in this. Um, and I have to say, as as I read it, I thought, I mean, this strikes me as totally plausible the way it might have gone. I mean, even down to the level of very senior officials and George Tenet and Dick Clark are sort of the two protagonists in the book debating the wisdom of the approach in the moment and really asking themselves how much do we really know and that you know it, it captures a level of uncertainty which i think would be you know indisputably true in a situation like this it's not i mean i would find it very hard to believe that the real story of dragon fire is um uh, you know, uh, everything went completely according to plan. They knew exactly where to find the nuclear weapon and they just never have talked about it. But rather it's this like fumbling, a tremendously anxious, um, stressful uh, operation that, you know, when the characters kind of start out on it, they give themselves a very small percentage chance of succeeding. Yeah. And, and I think that this is one of the things um, that to me 
is really important to look back at the legacy of 9-11 and the legacy of the war on terror is, you know, we talk about 9-11 as if it was a singular event. But what it really was, um, and you look at the legacy of black sites, of torture, of Guantanamo Bay, of the war in Iraq, you have to understand what every day after 9-11 was like also. And that the U.S. government officials who were in these roles, you know, they really did think that there was some other big shoe that was about to drop, that there was a second wave of attacks. And that in ways that we've now sort of forgotten 20 years on, you know, the anthrax letters begin to unfold, you know, in a couple of weeks after 9-11. You have Richard Reed, the shoe bomber. Um, you have this tidal wave of other threats and plots like Dragonfire that they are wrestling to the ground every day. Um, and that, you know, every hour of every day, every morning, you know, U.S. officials are waking up sort of almost expecting that that day is going to be another 9-11. Um, and that they are reacting in all of these horrible, dark, tragic um, ways to, you know, enable torture, enable black sites, enable Guantanamo Bay, um, but doing it because they really think that they are in this race against time to stop the next attack. Um, and so part of my goal with Dragonfire was also to try to recapture some of that mentality in the fall of 2001 um, that we forget now because, you know, we know that Al-Qaeda never again successfully attacked the United States after 9-11. Um, and that that, you know, was not the way that any of these officials were waking up every morning thinking. Yeah, I, I agree with you that the, the public appraisal of largely the Bush administration's response, but also the Obama administration's too, changes over time from, I think, people being disturbed or even outraged about government response to having a level of empathy and remembering what it was like in the moment when it was so terribly uncertain. And the more that we hear about these stories of how close we came to near attacks or people thought we were about to experiencing something like you know a nuclear weapon going off in New York, it changes the way that people think about that period. And I think, I want to know what you think about this too, I think makes it more likely that the public would accept a response that was even more ferocious and even more potentially invasive of civil liberties and privacy, which have fundamentally been altered, I'd argue, by social media in some ways, than even that we had on 9-11. Because we would, we, the public would look at this and say, would remember, we almost flash right back to those moments of 9-11, but also have an understanding that um, we had been worried for 20 plus years, whatever it would be by that time that something terrible had happened, that this could happen again. I mean, what, what do you think? Or do you think that people would be less likely to to give the government a freer hand in responding to it than even we were 20 years ago? I, I think it depends entirely on who the enemy is, right? Hmm. Like the, the challenge, and again, you know, you have been covering this day to day over the last two years. Um, you know, the number one terror threat to the United States consistently across every public official speaking uh, is 
domestic white nationalist extremists. Yep. Um, you know, something, uh, if we saw something like the Oklahoma city bombing, you know, emerge from a U.S. terror group, um, I, I think you would see sort of immense immediate, um, political division around it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I think the thing that we, can't expect after the next terror attack is that there would be anywhere near the sense of political unity uh, that experienced after 9-11. Um, you know, I, I, I fully believe, Shane, that there is going to be a Republican congressional candidate next year who runs on the platform of having participated in the January 6th insurrection. Hmm. Um, and, you know, we saw um, I, I, Huffington Post was tracking it. I, I think their final tally was that there were eight Republicans elected um, in the November elections this fall um, who had participated in the January 6th insurrection. Um, and, and I think that it, if if it's a if we are weathering a terror attack from overseas, um uh, I, I don't think you're going to see that same level of political unity. Um, because again, I think what you're going to see is a Republican party that sort of immediately uh, condemns Joe Biden and says that the terror attack is the direct result of Biden's disastrous pullout of Afghanistan, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um and, you know, calls for, you know, months and years of congressional hearings, sort of a la Benghazi. Um, and if it's a, uh, you know, white nationalist, uh, far right extremist group in the United States, you know, you're going to have the exact same, uh, you know, reverse of, uh, of the political uh, uh, um, environment. And, and I think we're just... We're, we're, we will probably never experience the unity that we saw after the attack after 9-11 again. Yeah, and that, and that that period of unity, I mean, that's what you're in Dragonfire. That's what you're writing about. I mean, it's this period weeks after the attack where things like Bob Mueller walking into the Oval every day with the threat matrix, which is like the Excel spreadsheet, right, that he has all of the known plots and things are tracking on, is still in its infancy. Everything is new. Um, but the fear is, you know, is palpable and that would last for, for many, many years. When, when writing about that, why did you decide that you wanted to use fiction as, as the means for writing that as opposed to just, you know, doing a piece that says, here's this incident that happened. Here's everything we know about it. Uh, it sounds really terrifying. Here are all the people who won't say anything about it, which is tantalizing. Why do it in fiction? Because um, I think it let me do that last little twist of imagining why someone wouldn't want to talk about this, um, <laughs> which, you know, I think, it, and you've experienced this many, many, many times in your own reporting. There are these moments when you're reporting on national security, when you're reporting on intelligence, where you, uh, where there's sort of something that doesn't quite add up and you can sense that there's a classified fact that would make everything make sense 
that just we don't quite understand uh, what that fact is and why things don't add up. That's sort of like there's like this, you know, spider sense tingle in a story that, uh, you know, something's not quite right. It, there's sort of one of the great examples of the, um, you know, the the narrative of Benghazi, actually, which I just mentioned, didn't make sense until it came out later that there was this CIA annex and this team of CIA personnel that were sort of involved on the ground in the response. Um, the sort of that story, there was just like, there was a big piece missing of how the U S response unfolded, where and how, and who was involved. And then you're like, Oh, there was a classified CIA annex where, there were a whole bunch of operators and people were, you know, were responded from and then retreated to. Um, and, you know, then the whole story begins to add up. And this was a case where I just don't know what the classified fact is that I'm missing in Dragonfire that would make this story make sense. Um, and so uh, rather than uh, writing it up as here's a weird unanswered mystery of 20 years ago that probably doesn't mean anything at all to anyone. Um, I thought it would be a little bit more fun and a little bit more provocative to try to imagine what that piece of missing information was. Yeah. And I won't give away anything about the book because people will read it and see for themselves. Um, but you're even restrained in the level of imagination and speculation that you're using, which I thought was actually was admirable. I mean, it's a, you could have just said, Here's exactly how it all went down. But you leave elements of mystery and kind of uncertainty through it as well, which I thought was cool. The other thing that I think it was really fun and I was a, a bit envious of you because I thought oh, this would have been really neat to try out is you have to take these pretty well-known characters being, you know, President Bush, but also Richard Clark, who was the counterterrorism czar at the time, and George Tenet, who was then the director of CIA and director of Central Intelligence, and imagine dialogue <laughs> between them and like how that feels. And I think it's interesting because these are these are characters who, you know, you and I have both reported on over the years. Have had some, you know, interactions with them. But I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't say these are people that I know well. I mean, maybe you know them better than I do. But um, talk a little bit about what that was like of like when you have to imagine. You know, Dick Clark and George Tennant hanging out in Dick Clark's office with the low ceiling, you know, in the in the basement of the White House complex. And were you at all, I mean, was it a little intimidating to think about that? Or did you just kind of, you know, say, oh, shut that part of your brain off and just, you know, it, it just purely approach this as a fiction author? Yeah. So I um, I found it in, in some ways, uh, uh, you know, very freeing and... and uh, as someone who, you know, most of the books that I write, most of the history that I write is trying to reconstruct, um, you know, conversations that I wasn't there for, you know, meetings that I wasn't in attendance at, um, it, you know, you can often, you know, imagine what actually might have taken place um, and, you know, trying to understand, you know, how people think and what they think in, in given moments. Um, and then be able to, in, in this instance, unlike all of the rest of my work, make up the work that I um, don't get a chance to otherwise do um, was fun. And, and also, um, you know, I would like to think I, I got pretty close. Um, you know, I, beyond the dialogue, as I, as I imagined, 
parts of the dialogue. You know, many of the conversations that I discuss in the book um, happened at some point. Um, you know, part of what I did in in writing this was I, you know, collapsed a lot of events that actually did take place in the wake of 9-11 um, to have them all unfold during this same four-day time span. So, you know, we know that sort of similar conversations happen, similar events happen. Um, and then, um, you know, as you said, you know, we actually have a pretty good sense of how a lot of policies and procedures would unfold in U.S. government um, in an event like this. And so, you know, there is sort of a, a checklist almost for events um, like this of sort of who would be notified and how it would unfold. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you can draw some conclusions about, you know, the series of telephone calls that would have happened uh, as an event like this played out. You, you said that a lot of your work is about trying to you know, recreate the moment um, when it happened and then take people back to that that place and that time, and particularly with the dialogue. And I think probably the book that most people, will, maybe you're best known for is The Only Plane in the Sky, which is your oral history of 9-11, um, which has been received just tons and tons of accolades. Um, talk about why, or what is, what is the kind of the special purchase that oral history has over people and, and a hold that it has on readers versus writing, you know, what could have been just a, a documented book about that day and those events from lots of points of view, but told more through your voice as opposed to using the voice of the people who were voices of the people who were there. Yeah. So I, I think to me, the power of oral history um, and particularly the power of 9-11 as oral history um, is that it puts people back in the moment uh, only understanding the things that they knew in that moment. Um, and that I think one of the challenges of writing history, uh, of doing journalism in, in general, is that you, you often, you know, are trying to apply sort of this hindsight is 2020 mindset of, you know, what would have been the perfect reaction, what would have been, you know, what should these people have known at that moment that they didn't know? Um, you know, how, uh, how are their actions in that moment judged in the harsh light of history? Um, whereas to me, um, one of the things that's always attracted me as a writer, as a historian, as a journalist is you know, we all get up every day and, you know, make a whole bunch of decisions, not knowing all of the things that we wish that we knew. And so trying to figure out what the um, answer, not, not what the answer should have been, but what was the best answers, you know, based on the decisions and the knowledge that people had in that moment. Um, and so, you know, this this day, this time span of the fall of 2001, both around 9-11 and then around Dragonfire, um, you know, to me, it's really important to capture what people felt in those moments, the the fear, the chaos, the trauma, the, conf the confusion. 
Um, because what you don't see, uh, what I think we, we too often overlook is exactly how little people actually understood of the events that they were living through at the moment. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, to me, that's always been an attractive part of history is trying to understand what people actually understood and lived in the moment and to judge them based on their lived experience, not sort of the perfect set of circumstances that we wish that they had understood at the moment. And everyone has a everyone has a story of where were you on 9-11, right? Everybody, everyone remembers where they were. And so I think hearing other people's stories of where they were on 9-11, particularly when they were in the, in the midst of it, resonates with people as just, it's, it's totally compelling. And I think there's almost like, I mean, I find that I almost have a boundless appetite for hearing people's 9-11 stories. You, I would think that by now I would have gotten over it, but I'm always curious to know what people were doing on 9-11. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, and this is true 20 years on, especially, is we tell this really neat and tidy history of 9-11 now. You know, when we try to teach it, when we try to explain it, we, you know, the attacks began at 8.46 in the morning. There were four planes. The whole thing was over 102 minutes later with the collapse of the second tower. There was the Pentagon. There was Shanksville. There were the Twin Towers. Um, but, you know, that's not the day that you lived. That's not the day that I lived. That's not the day that President Bush lived. Um, that's not the day that, you know, the first responders in New York lived. You know, they none of us understood when the attacks began, we didn't understand when they were over. And most of all, none of us understood what came next. And, and that to me is sort of part of this Dragonfire story as well, is trying to make sure that we remember that 9-11 wasn't a single day, that it was an entire you know, mentality and siege that the nation lived under for days, weeks, and months afterwards as well. So where were you on 9-11? Uh, I was, you know, in in Boston in college. I was uh, just starting my junior year. Um, I was, uh, uh, you know, have a super boring and quotidian 9-11 <laughs> story of being told by a friend while I was eating breakfast in college. Um, and, you know, it, yet... For me, all of the details of that day are still very much burned into my mind. You know, I can tell you exactly where I was standing when I saw the first photo of Osama bin Laden on television. And um, I, you know, remember being puzzled about how, how could everyone who was on TV be so sure that this person and this thing called Al-Qaeda that I had never heard of um, had attacked us when I had, as I said, never heard of him, mm -hmm. never heard of them. And, um, you know, in, in some ways, um, you know, my entire journalism career has been focused on trying to understand how our nation changed, how our government changed, and how Washington changed uh, in the wake of that attack. So we just had the 20th anniversary. Um, I think you were in New York on the 20th anniversary. I think I, I saw you on, on, on TV. Yep. Um, so are you done writing about 9-11 or, or is this a, has a chapter been closed and, and what's, what's next on your plate? 
Um, so I, um, I am for now at least done uh, writing about 9-11. Um, I, uh, as you know, I did a podcast for this fall looking at some of the unanswered questions, mm -hmm. the lingering questions of 9-11, actually with the partners here at Goat Rodeo Absolutely. who help you with this podcast. The podcast was called Long Shadow. Um, I, I recommend it to anyone still interested <laughs> in 9-11 events. Um, you could probably download it someplace we know. Yeah. But I've actually um, have a, uh, so I have a new book that's actually coming out in February um, that is a narrative history of Watergate. Um, and it is the sort of first soup to nuts, one volume history of Watergate that's been written mm. in over 30 years. And it's the first one written since we now know the identity of Deep Throat, ah, yeah. uh, Mark Felt, the um, FBI deputy director. And so it was, um, it, it's both an attempt to try to tell sort of the most complete and the truest version of that story that anyone has ever been uh, able to tell based on all of the information that we've learned in the years since. Um, but it's also, in my mind, um, it was a project that grew directly out of the Trump years um, because it was a way to try to go back and look at um, presidential abuses of power and also um, how the uh, sort of why Watergate worked, um, you know, how how was Nixon driven from office in 1974 and what, what aligned across the various Washington power structures that allowed that to happen? Um, because it certainly didn't happen with Donald Trump. It, you know, he was impeached twice, um, neither time successfully. Um, and it was both times, uh, you know, a very partisan and bitter fight in a way that uh, Nixon ultimately was a very bipartisan effort in driving him from office in the summer of 1974. Um, and so, uh, you know, th this is both a book about Watergate, but then also a book about how and why and when we hold presidents accountable. Uh, it's a big question, and we're getting to the end of our time here. So for, forgive me for asking you a big question at the end. But looking now at the two impeachments of Donald Trump and, and studying as you have the, the near impeachment of Nixon, um, do you think that impeachment as an effective check on the president is dead? I, unfortunately, I do. Uh, I am hard pressed to understand what the uh, what the level of crime or corruption would now have to be in order for there to be a uh, resounding uh, impeachment call in Washington. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we have seen, uh, you know, a, a Republican Party, um, you know, that, yes, there was a bipartisan vote for impeachment uh, of Donald Trump, the first ever. Um, but, uh, you know, this is not uh, 
this is not a moment that, where we saw the party be willing to hold its president accountable in the same way that the Republican Party was willing to do in the 1970s. Yeah, that that spirit of bipartisanship was just com- completely different. I mean, it was real and it animated, I think, much of life in Washington in a way that just is, seems completely foreign to us now. Um, all right, last question here on Chatter is always the Chatterbox. I'm going to open the – people can hear me opening it and Garrett can see it hopefully online. I'm going to randomly select a pre-written question. Uh, and your question is from the Chatterbox. Oh, this is a good one. What common misperception about your profession or specialty makes your blood boil? So I think that for me, uh, the perception uh, that large media institutions are liberal um, or, or that the media is liberal, because I think my experience in journalism is actually that one of the major corrupting forces in American journalism today is actually organizations, uh, news outlets that are bending over backwards to try to endear themselves to conservatives um, at the expense of, um, as we were talking about a while ago, um, you know, being willing to call, uh, you know, call the Republican Party on the carpet for its betrayal of basic democratic norms in, in our democracy. And can I, I, I want to amplify that too, that <clears throat> when I entered journalism, what I found is that it was not a quote unquote liberal institution. What it did have more of, and I think these were remnants now that I think about it, is being fundamentally skeptical of large organizations and of institutions. And that there was a kind of spirit of constant skepticism and, you know, then the kind of the idea of the best journalists being, you know, the ink-stained wretches that are, you know, you know, standing outside the halls of power and 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 calling to hold people accountable. And I feel like we've lost a lot of that too. And as journalistic institutions themselves have become just huge and kind of pervasive. Um, and I, I agree with you that there's often a, a kind of weird kind of compensating that we're doing to try and bend over backwards to make things sound like, you know, they're, 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 that, that all arguments are equal when <laughs> they're clearly not. And that's not about choosing a side. It's just simply about giving weight to the more important facts. Yes. But we've, I, feel, I feel like we've kind of lost, and there's lots of reasons why we probably lost that, but it is not, journalism as an institution is less anti-institutionalist than when I started two decades ago. I very much agree. Well, Garrett Graff, this has been fun, man. Thanks for coming on. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Shane. I hope we will do it next time over drinks. I would like that very much. Uh, The new book is Dragonfire. Um, What's the best way for people to get it, by the way? So this is uh, part of a series called Scribd Originals, um, and it's available on Scribd, the the website for uh, online reading. Awesome. Well, congratulations. Uh, It's great. People should check it out. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. 